Hello there, and welcome to Fuds on Film. This is our intermission podcast, the one, you know, where we just talk about the films, what we've done seen in that. So we'll just do that, shall we, without further ado? Apart from the general do of introducing ourselves, I'm Drew, over there, Scott. Hello. And let's crack on. Scott, Ocean's 8, what's that all about? What's it all about? It's the question we've all asked ourselves in many regards. I'm not sure there was ever a huge demand to reboot the Rat Pack vehicle Ocean's Eleven, but it happened anyway, and by most accounts, I've not seen the original. Uh, it took a bad film and made a good, or at least enjoyable one, out of it. So which... a, a useful remake, a sensible remake of taking the bad films for once. Yes, exactly the sort of thing that should happen, rather than the precise opposite, which seems to normally be the modus operandi. But anyway, sadly, the entirely unnecessary Ocean's Twelve was so awful that few people bothered to see Ocean's Thirteen, and so the whole idea lay low for a decade. So. Here we are, with this mainly female-led reboot, which I'm similarly not sure there's a huge demand for, but, well, we've got it anyway. Uh, Sandra Bullock's Debbie Ocean is released from jail after being framed for a crime she did not commit by her ex-lover Claude Becker, played by Richard Armitage. I mean, she'd done lots of other crimes, sure, but not that one. But she's not been idle in prison, and has been creating plans for a daring heist that she immediately begins to enact. She enlists the help of her old partner in crime, Kate Blanchett's Lou, with a plan to steal a $150 million Cartier necklace during the Met Gala. A caper of this audacity will need a number of accomplices, witting and unwitting both, such as Rihanna's Nineball, a hacker, Mindy Kaling's Amita, a jeweller, Aquafina's Constance, a pickpocket, Sarah Paulson's Tammy, a fence, Anne Hathaway's Daphne, an A-list actor, and Helena Bonham Carter's Rose, a stylist. There's... Little value in rehashing much more of the general idea than that. Uh, The fun of these sort of movies is, in general, uncovering the methods of it as it goes along. And I'm sure I'm not revealing much to say that it follows the basic path laid down by the previous Ocean films. Plans within plans, wheels within wheels, reveals within reveals, that sort of thing. Uh, The problem is that it's kind of hard to care about plans, wheels or reveals in a script that's, well, serviceable is about as good as I can come up with the saying about it. Uh, It's not outright bad. And it's certainly more enjoyable than I recall Ocean's 12 being, but it's all very ordinary. While I like the most of the supporting cast, the two leads, and I'm in general less enamoured with, didn't really see any chemistry at all between Bullock and Blanchett throughout the entire film, which really hampers everything. It's trying its best of the same kind of bouncy, punchy dialogue that Clooney and Pitt had in the first Ocean's 11 film, but it just doesn't nail it at all, and it's not disastrously bad, it's just ordinary. Um, as I mentioned, Kaling, Hathaway and Bonham Carter in particular managed to inject a bit more life into proceedings and it stumbles on more or less amiably enough to the end without ruffling too many feathers. It even survives dropping James Corden into the final act, which is a remarkable feat indeed these days. What did they drop James Corden into and from? Because those are important <laughs> things to know. Yes, Sadly, a role as an insurance investigator rather than an active volcano, which is... Oh! You know, like most of these films, the actual final reveal of where the Kansas City Shuffle ends up holds up to precisely zero scrutiny, and if nothing else requires a jailbird to have a surprising level of insider information about a year's distant Metropolitan Museum of Art exhibition schedules. But that's the kind of thing that's going to come to light if you think about the film afterwards, and this is very much the sort of film that invites no scrutiny whatsoever on leaving the cinema. Indeed, I've largely forgotten what it was about already, and I only saw it last week. It's pulled in quite a decent box office, and I'm not sure how I feel about that. I've seen much better films do worse, and much worse films do better, so I suppose I'll remain neutral. Does it need a sequel? No, but when's that ever stopped anyone? And while this isn't much more than a slickly produced slice of competency, I wouldn't automatically dismiss the idea of watching another one of them. 
So, Ocean's 8 gets an official Fuds on Film score of fine. <laughs> Out of 10, probably. Yeah, hard to get excited about, but I don't think anyone's going to cover it at the cinema demanding their money back angrily. It's, it's perfectly serviceable entertainment, but it, it's really hard to recommend anyone making any sort of effort at all to see it. It's fine. It's all right. <laughs> yes, uh, well, I made precisely zero effort to see it. Um, and had I been able to see it with making almost as little effort, I probably wouldn't have done st- I've seen the trailers and it just left me completely cold. Mm. First of all, it's the fact that it's simply unnecessary. Why Why for a film? Really? Yeah. It's like There were three Ocean's Eleven films with the George Clooney one. One of which is pretty good. One of which is decent. One of which is an abomination. Um, mm. And that seemed plenty. Given they'd already gone mm. one film too far in that fight. Although that was the middle one, which doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> but <laughs> And then it's got, yeah, Sandra Bullock, who occasionally be okay. She can surprise me things like The Blind Side or The Heat, actually. I thought she was really quite good and I hadn't expected much from that. Mm. And I thought she worked quite well with Melissa McCarthy in that. But she doesn't, she's not an actress that particularly excites me. No. Oh, it's Sandra Bullock. Okay, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas Kate Blanchett, for the most part, I really really don't like and it's an actress I've never really understood the regard for yeah I don't think she's very good so that turns me off and then Rihanna you know the only times I've seen her act are the clips I've seen from Battleship which is quite legendarily awful and the shy Ronnie video she did with the Lonely Island in which she is awful because she can barely speak her lines and those are like four minute skits and she has three lines in them so that turned me off somewhat. Rihanna's all right in this. No, no real complaints. It's, it, it's stunt casting. I mean, there's obviously better actresses than uh, Rihanna walking around, but she's okay. She's clearly there for the star power rather than of her pop career, rather yeah. than her actual acting one. Um, and you know, I did actually see Battleship for, I don't know why, but Rihanna's probably the, the least objectionable thing in that <laughs> film, to be honest. But that, that's a, that's a, that's a different story. In another that's a low bar. So, yes. <laughs> yeah, but the point is that it's like I'm not going to be excited by Rihanna being in it. Yeah. And the rest of the people, I and mean, I've seen them in much better things. But it's like, okay, I don't I've got no enthusiasm for any of the leads. I really don't like the other lead. I don't like the stunt casting. The trailers mm. all look terrible. Yeah. And Hathaway came away particularly badly in the trailers and clips I'd seen. Um, so the whole thing just left me so cold and I've just got no interest in seeing it. And the things you said suggest it's not really Yeah, I'm not going to be able to change your bothering mind. about it. <laughs> I think if you did see it, it's, it's fine. But, yeah, it's not really worth the trip to the cinema, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, if it stumbles up on Netflix at some point, then yeah, give it a go. But... Unless it involves absolutely zero barrier to entry, I don't really think there's an awful lot of reason to go and seek it out. And had no antipathy towards it, just a complete lack of enthusiasm. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> nah. Thanks, I've not bothered with that. Shall we then go on to talk about Calibre? A film of a different calibre entirely? Yes. I feel we're setting ourselves up for some more rifle-based puns here. This adaptation of the classic Namco beat-em-up? No, it's so <laughs> cal- that's, that's a different spelling of Calibre, isn't it? <laughs> This adaptation of the classic ebook management software. King Arthur's sword before he got divorced from it. <laughs> oh, that's a different spelling also. <laughs> uh, my pun works in audio though. 
Yes, this film, which was 2018 Best British Film, the Edinburgh International Film Festival, has been picked up by Netflix and has been getting, from my sampling of the people what I do follow on Twitter, <laughs> been rather successful. People have found it quite affecting. So this is, the setup is fairly straightforward. There's this guy who lives in Edinburgh with his girlfriend, who's recently found out she's pregnant. His name's Vaughn. His friend Marcus turns up and they've arranged to go deer stalking, deer hunting up in Scottish Highlands. Now, a film like this often set up suggests that, you know, oh, it's pretentious and stuff, but you know what? No, it's not. He's Vaughn's not particularly enthusiastic about leaving his pregnant girlfriend or wife, but other than that, yeah, they've been friends for a long time. They're going hunting. It's all good. They get up to the this little village in the Highlands. It's not doing great financially. But it seems a reasonably friendly place. There's the typical idiot in the bar who's aggressive and jealous when some woman's talking to the new guy that comes in. But, you know, nothing that probably isn't real in every town and every um, country in the world. Hmm. It's not deliverance. It's not deliverance, no. So it it seems quite straightforward. And there's a a few people maybe a bit on the nosy side. But at the same time, there's, there's no particular malice. It's not set up in a way that it almost feels like you expect it to be. Mm. Yeah, so after having spent the night getting heavily drunk in the bar and one of the two friends having a bit of extracurricular fun with one of the locals, they go out hunting. Now, Vaughn, not so sure he can kill a deer, but he gets a deer in his sights, hesitates for a moment, then just as he pulls the trigger, something goes horribly, horribly wrong. Now, I don't know if I should say what it is, because I'm not sure how clear the marketing materials make this. Scott, have you any idea? Do they tell you what happens? No, but I mean, it happens like 20 minutes into the film, and it'll be very difficult to talk about the rest of it if you don't. <laughs> yes, I, I suppose so. It's so well, yes. Um, so, sadly for Vaughn, the deer moves its head right at the last moment, and just as he's pulling the trigger and the deer's moving its head, he sees a small boy standing a little distance behind the deer, but who had previously been obscured by the deer's head. Mm. And his bullet goes right through the boy's head. Yeah. Which is contraindicated in, in most scenarios. Yeah. yeah. Yes. That's going to ruin your morning. Though not as much as the kids, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> Vaughn there rushes over to the kid, um, rather distraught, drops his rifle next to the boy's body. And as you can imagine, is panicking a bit. He then hears the boy's father calling his name, searching for him. He stumbles upon the scene, takes the dead boy in his arms, and then... While Vaughn is just standing there sort of staring, not knowing what to do, the father picks up Vaughn's rifle that he's discarded. Yeah, this this might not go so well. The distraught father starts to bring the rifle to bear on Vaughn, and then Vaughn's friend Marcus kills him. So, you know, being upright citizens who want to explain this horrible tragedy that's happened, they hide the bodies, run away, pretend it wasn't them, and come back in the middle of the night and bury them. Mm-hmm. Things kind of go downhill from there. <laughs> Well, they begin to find that the close-knit local community is vengeful, perhaps would be a good word. And that's just for the minor things, uh, like the aforementioned uh, extracurricular activities. So if they find out what happened to these two people from the community, it's not going to end well for the two friends. Spoilers. It doesn't. <laughs> it is. I how much more to talk about this. Um I guess there's no particular mystery to it. It has trappings of a horror film. No music, though, which I kind of appreciate. There was no score for it. Mm-hmm. 
it has kind of the idea of horror films of like country folk turning on the outsiders and like that kind of tension but it isn't it's just a thriller and quite a tense one at that although I don't know I didn't feel it did, I didn't enjoy it as much as most other people seem to yeah I found the same but I mean I can recognize that it's doing a really good job of building tension it is I think objectively speaking no it's a good film but mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. a good film in the way that you could appreciate elements or something of Morgan and Collar. It's got the same critical flaws as that I'm, it's trying to make me buy into a protagonist that I don't really want to see get away <laughs> with it. And yeah. you know, if most films that have murderers as their protagonists tend not to be able to build a lot of sympathy for that character purely because of the whole murdering thing. And that's kind of what happened here. Um, That's part of it, yeah. A lot of it is, it's trying to build up tension, but at the end of the day, I actually want to see them get caught because, you know, justice and all that. So (laughs) it it always seems to be working a little bit at odds to itself when I was watching this. Uh, I still would say overall, I guess I enjoyed it. It's it's certainly a well-put-together bit of filmmaking. And if nothing else, it's two really good performances in the lead role. I did quite like uh, both these guys, uh, Jack Loudon and Martin McCann. I think they did quite a good, uh, quite a good sort of believable relationship and how that kind of falls apart over the course of it and how one, how you can be pushed to an extreme and then have to keep covering it up as as they kind of do in this and uh, how you would kind of feel entrapped into doing the other guys bidding and so on and all that kind of stuff. I think it's it's quite well handled on a character basis. Uh, so I can certainly appreciate it in that aspect of it. Um, it's just a bit strange that the way it's, yeah, how how it's building tension is kind of at odds with how it's, how, we, how you'd want to see it resolved in the final instance as well. So it's, it, it's a bit, it's a bit of a mixed, mixed bag, but I would say I, prob- I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, but yeah, if it's the best British film of the year, um, not, not so sold in that one, but I couldn't offhand name something better than it. They're not murderers. Well, not, well. I suppose Vaughn isn't anyway. It is an accident. It's a horrible, horrible accident. You, yeah. you couldn't predict. And it wasn't like he wasn't any, taking any particular care of anything. Yeah. This boy had wandered off in the forest, happened to be in the same spot where they were hunting, and because he was further away than the deer, he was obscured by the deer's head. And yeah, it's, it's a tragic accident. You could possibly even argue that what happens next was Marcus thinking that he's protecting his friend because he saw the guy with the gun pointing at him. But Mm. it's probably not because he could have fired a warning shot. He could have shouted and said, I've got a gun and you don't do that. Mm. And the fact that he's almost immediately thinking, yeah, um, we need to hide these bodies, not, oh, what do we do? What do we do? Maybe this is what we do. It's like the thought has arrived in his head fully formed. Yeah. That probably makes him a bad person if that's where he went to, first of all. So yeah, so technically I can see why people are, are going on board with this. And it's certainly, it's quite tense in parts. And nothing seems hugely out of the ordinary in terms of the way people would act. Yeah, Maybe the, the Brian character, the one that seems to take objection to that rather unpleasant woman um, having slept with Marcus. Yeah. That seemed a bit forced. and Had it been his daughter, maybe, but it was his friend's daughter and that just seemed a bit odd. Yeah. And just there aren't actually any nice people in this film. Everybody's bad to some degree or other. Mm. Apart from people who are basically extras, you know, the woman yeah. who works in the hotel just is there. 
But um, for the most part, nobody's acting outrageously. Nobody's doing anything that requires a massive leap that to believe that a human would act like that. Yeah. But it does kind of show that they're just the humans there aren't particularly pleasant people. But for most of it, and part of it is like what we're talking about, that they're people who did a bad thing and they covered up. You know, the cover-up's always worse than the crime because it wasn't necessarily a crime to begin with, just a, as I say, a tragic accident. Yeah. That I didn't, so you don't care about them, but even just for the whole film, I kind of felt detached from it. Because mm. even when that little boy was shot, I'm like, oh, which is so I kind of, it's, it never really hooked me from the beginning, I guess. Yeah. Because it, it really, you think, oh, a child's been shot. So, oh, no, jeez. Oh, I was like, oh, oh. <laughs> and I'm not really for the shooting of children, so it's not that. It's, <laughs> well, some yeah. children, obviously, but some children can't be helped. <laughs> yeah. But it's because it comes so suddenly that it's effectively just just a begoffin at that point. You know, yeah, that's that's not an unfair thing to say, cause, actually. Because you can't really register it at the point that it happens, and it's almost immediately then into the into the d- double murder and cover up setting so quickly. It's it's not really given time to breathe as a tragedy of its own. So that is correct. Yeah, I I liked it. I would still recommend it. It's certainly, if you already have your Netflix subscription, it is certainly worth putting onto your watch list because that's where it is. It's a premiere to direct to Netflix, uh, and I don't really think you would have gained much by seeing it on a big screen. Uh, I think this holds up quite well on a on your home formats. So there's no reason not to. It is, even if I think it's perhaps unlikely to be the best British film this year, in my opinion, it's still quite a good one. So yeah, why not give it a go? Yes, why not? Yeah, I think you'd be foolish not to. Because there aren't that many British films made at all. Um, yes. <laughs> in the grand scheme of things, anyway. And, yeah, it's a technically competent film. It's just people, again, for the f- a few people in particular that have been a fallen Twitter and have really, like, they were talking about, like, really, really tense moments that they could barely watch again and stuff. And I, I was honestly wondering which moments they were talking about because I couldn't work out what it could have been. But it seems to have really worked for some people. Yeah. I was never so on the edge of my seat. That that would ever be a concern. Um. I mean, it kept me guess a few because there, there were a few different ways I thought it was going to go. Yeah, and then there's a coda, which I thought was going to go slightly differently as well, and didn't. And I and that, mm. and that coda, I almost fell out of place. It, it felt almost like it was going more for a horror film, and something bad was going to happen there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, I really wanted to like this more. I just felt detached from it for the most part. Yeah, which is a pity. So it's officially certified as better than Ocean's 8 out of 10. <laughs> so that that's that's something then, Scott. Um, and without spoiling anything too much, let's move on to something I believe we both enjoyed a great deal more, and that's the latest Wes Anderson film. What with us being large, weta, um, large, big, big, large, big. Look, I'm overweight, yes. There's no need to rub it in. We're Wes Anderson fans is what I'm trying and failing to say despite it being an incredibly simple sentence. <laughs> yes, so Isle of Dogs... How to say this? So it's in a far-ish flung future Japan in Megasaki City, which is run by a totalitarian mayor, Kobayashi, who is part of a dynasty of cat-loving, dog-hating authority figures who has, for reasons not particularly well explained, um, joined... Or at all? (laughs) Joined the cabal of similarly cat-loving... Authority figures to whip up a conspiracy to have people in the city dislike dogs, as it's revealed by by afflicting the canine population with 
various diseases and and that <laughs> and stuff for some reason, and then creating a, a wave of outrage against this, which he uses in order to round up all dogs and cart them off to Trash Island, an aptly named island which is full of trash. The film's narrative hinges upon his ward, Atari, taking off in a plane and crashing on Trash Island in a desperate attempt to find his beloved uh, guard dog, Spots. Yes, yes Spots. Spots. That was the one. Uh, and, and the film follows him and a, a pack of dogs voiced by the likes of Brian Cranston, Bill Murray, Jeff Goldblum, Bob Balaban and Ed Norton to try and help him get his dog back. And along the way, they will uncover these, this conspiracy and expose it to a nation for who I suppose would be grateful, although we don't really get to see that. <laughs> so I suppose that's the, that's the rough setup. It is absolutely charming. In common with pretty much everything Wes Anderson's done, I mean, obviously this is closer in visual tone and general concept to the Fantastic Mr. Fox than anything else. But uh, for my money, it's uh, quite a lot better than Fantastic Mr. Fox. Mm. I know a lot of people really like Fantastic Mr. Fox. I just thought it was okay. And I've never really went back to watch it again or anything like that. But this is utterly charming. And I suppose not just because it's uh, got dogs in it and dogs are better. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's all, it's all just really charming. There's lots of really interesting to- touches. Uh, a number of different styles of animation, you know, the stop motion stuff and uh, actual uh, you know, cartoon animation, that kind of thing. Uh, some really interesting design choices, particularly audio wise, where uh, the dogs can speak in English, but um, a lot of the but the the Japanese people a lot of the time haven't been translated. There's no subtitles for them, so you're kind of left a bit guessing. Is there's lots of interesting choices. How Wes Anderson is that though? Because it begins with that title card of um, <laughs> yes. that the dogs can't understand everything. Basically, and saying that the humans are interpreted by translator um, mechanical means and high school students, yeah. whereas all dog barks have been translated to English. Mm. <laughs> a strange disclaimer, and one that is not needed on a great number of films. Um, <laughs> they're not altogether sure what to say about it. Only I've actually watched this yesterday, so it's not really sunk in all that much, other than I just heartily enjoyed it. It's, you've got to break out the whimsy word again. Um, it's, it's certainly incredibly whimsical, but I think this is far more forgivable in this sort of uh, style of animation than, I think for most people, uh, than it would be on something like the live-action stuff like Grand Budapest Hotel. Now, I absolutely love all of Wed Hansen's films, no matter how daft they get, but I know a lot <laughs> of people get turned off by that level of um, sort of slightly weird, saccharine-ish, whimsical nonsense, but I love it. <laughs> and uh, I think most people should find it that it works far better in the, this kind of format than anything else. It's often quite funny. It's very got quite a dry sense of humour, I think, for most of it. It's yes. not been particularly broad. There's no real laugh-out-loud moments. There's no comedy pratfalls for the most part that I can remember. Um, it's just really beautifully done. It's beautifully pitched. I thought it was great. Yeah, it's strange that it is this incredibly whimsical, incredibly Wes anderson Wes Anderson film <laughs> that can only have come from Wes Anderson. Yeah. From the opening scene, you know it's a Wes Anderson film, if, if you didn't know that already. Yeah. Again, for me positive and nothing but a positive Mm. it is i don't know it's strange most wes anderson films are in one way throwaway they they don't i mean you could read things into certain parts of them certainly but they tend not to have a lot of meaning no they're they're well crafted Uh, cupcakes there's a lot of frosting and a lot of substance yeah yeah, the, the things you enjoy 
for what they are without reading much into them. And that's great. And I've enjoyed every Wes Anderson film I've seen, which is all of them. So that's a pretty astonishing hit rate, quite frankly. Mm. Uh, to quickly touch on Fantastic Mr. Fox, it was perhaps the one that I enjoyed least first time around. Right. I was felt left reasonably cold by that. I have mm. gone back to revisit that since so and like it a great deal more now. Okay. But this I liked instantly. Uh, I was so thoroughly entertained by all of it. I laughed so much during it. Mm. And yeah, really dry sense of humour, really appealing to me. But as I was saying about, you know, Wes Anderson things being, yeah, light and fluffy confections for the most part. Uh, yeah. It's about, you know, quirky characters and kind of silly dialogue and kind of almost breaking the fourth wall sometimes and then just kind of their yarns a lot of the time as mm. as films. Whereas this has a Holocaust metaphor in it. Yeah. Um, or allegory at least. And like, yeah, the, what? What is this doing in there? It, it feels so out of place. And it's so strange. It doesn't really take away from the film because I enjoyed the rest of it so much, but it's the one thing it's like, yeah, well, this is... This isn't even pretending by the end of it. It's like, there's the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. At least a Holocaust. You know, it's genocide that's been talked about in the end. And yeah, I mean, it's one step away from the canister saying Zyklon B on it. Yeah. It's, it's that close. Like, this this is strange. It's perhaps the one thing I'd take out because it's, I know it's a large part of the plot and the plot builds to that, but it when it got to the end, it just it seems so extreme. It's like, am I still watching a Wes Anderson film? Did they change the vector midway through or something? <laughs> But I still thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, the performances are great. It is... Yeah, all I can say though is if you like Wes Anderson films, I think there's a very good chance you're going to like this. If you don't like Wes Anderson, then really give it a body swerve because it's the most Wes Anderson-y Wes Anderson thing I think I've ever seen. <laughs> yes, yeah, a film with a... It's the only film I've seen with a stop-motion kidney transplant uh, <laughs> put in it. Yeah, some curious choices. You know, stop motion animation is obviously it's composited to computer nowadays, but still there's a lot of work goes into the maquettes and things. Mm. And I'm thinking how much effort they must have put in to have not one but at least three distinct maquettes have a skeletal version mm-hmm. for when they were applying medicine to them. Yeah. That's there's some odd choices going on in this film. Uh, I'm not really sure that adds anything and it must have cost an awful lot of time and money to do those. Mm-hmm. This is just strange, but I, I love the film. And I am only um, an hour and a half removed from having seen this, but yeah, it's it's just a great film. And I, I know I'm I'm wittering now. It's good. Watch it. Yes. Or if you don't like Wes Anderson, don't because you won't like it, and you'll say it's not good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that covers it. Yes, it it does. Um, like I don't think about anything more to say about it other than. Yes, I, I reiterate that entirely. It's a really, really great film. And if you like any of Wes Anderson stuff, I think you will like this a great deal. And if you don't like Wes Anderson stuff, you're a monster. <laughs> so I, think yes. I, didn't, I, didn't, it's, I don't want to get into it. Some people are accusing it of cultural appropriation. And I, I was going I, to mention I want that to rant bit. about it, but at the same time, I don't. It's not actually that important. <laughs> not um, well, I'll just, let's see, I'll just do it this way, Scott, just briefly touch on it. Uh, there has been controversy about this film um, in terms of its um, cultural appropriation of things and like how it's got like the how it's basically got a checklist for everything Japanese and like the Hokusai drawings and although I did see somebody in that list mention mushroom clouds and I just wanted to slap that person because what is in it? 
isn't a mushroom cloud in a reference to things that have happened in Japan. It's basically a cartoon effect. Mm. <laughs> when there's an explosion and you have your typical cartoon-like your typical cartoon-like mushroom cloud, right after you've seen a bunch of dogs fight inside a big cloud, exactly like a cartoon. It's a cartoon effect, not a reference to Nagasaki. Uh, yes, and I've seen lots of people, Japanese, Americans, and and white Americans, and then other Japanese people um, seem to be people on, sides, on both sides of this. As far as I can tell, it's nonsense. Because... I've seen lots and lots of Japanese cinema and it doesn't seem to me to be presenting Japan in any way that Japanese cinema doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the way that pop culture or any sort of culture in pretty much every country, every country is guilty of exactly the same thing. It's like you see the same stuff, the stuff that is famous about a country you see a lot, hmm. like um, no theatre or those drummers, Japanese drummers, the name of which immediately escapes, which is annoying. But you see that all the time. Um, and if you see, for instance, Next uh, Olympics in Tokyo, I guarantee those things are going to be part of the opening ceremony. Hmm. Just like all the tra- of traditional, stereotypical British things you'd get, were at the opening ceremony of the Olympics in London. It's yeah. how countries present themselves. You can't say it's cultural appropriation or it's stereotyping when pretty much every country on the planet is guilty of ex- displaying themselves in exactly that same way. Yeah. And actually, it's also it's nonsense to. I'm just. I know these thoughts are out there. It's pretty much nonsense too because um, the film actually works on two levels. The the Japanese text that is translated isn't always translated well, and for a Japanese audience, there's actually extra jokes for them in there <laughs> because and it's like a wee meta commentary perhaps about the problem of translation, yeah, and interpretation. So, just if you see that cultural appropriation talk, it's nonsense, and it's not even guilty of stereotyping for the reasons I've just said about how it's like. Every country's guilty of that. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what they do all the time. It's like, these are the things people know about the world. When we're showing ourselves the world, we're going to show these things. It's what people expect. Yeah. Um, and I can see why people might get upset about cultural appropriation in general as a thing. If it's ta- if it's some white guy coming in and taking the, a voice away from some Japanese person who was going to present this story, but what are the odds yes. of anyone in Japan coming up with this exact story? <laughs> I mean, I this is this is very specifically Wes Anderson. Unless there's a, a cloned Japanese Wes Anderson <laughs> yes. running around, you're not going to get this precise story. Yeah. This isn't yeah, like Wes Anderson telling a Japanese story. It's a Wes Anderson story being told in Japan. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and it could have been set anywhere. He likes Japanese aesthetics or something, but it's mm. it, it's an it's a non-starter, that argument. Um, it really is. The most it could be guilty of is perhaps cliches. And that's a really minor crime. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, well, even if you accuse it of cliches, it's kind of leaning into that. It, that's kind of its point in a lot of ways. It's, it is in some yeah. ways, yeah. Yeah, so don't let that put you off. It is, it is nonsense. If you have seen the trailers and like the look of it or like Wes Anderson, then you should definitely give it a good look at Indeed. I think that wraps us up for today. I believe so. So thank you very much for your attention. If you would like to get in touch with us, you may do so. We will permit it at a number of 
opinion delivery vectors are available to you. Twitter, twitter.com. We're, we're on the art uh, at Fuds on Film. There's the Facebook. That's a thing. So called the Facebook, right? Facebook.com slash Fuds on Film or email podcast at Fuds on Film.com. And we will be back with you next month with a look at Arnie films, we've decided, I think. So, yes, some of the classic Arnie action films will be related to you, as though you haven't heard them already. But now you get to hear us talk about them and talk about Commando, because Commando's really good. <laughs> so, ta-da! Bye-bye!